0: Welcome to another edition of Baffling Combustions with Andrew McCarran, Sam Truitt, and Sparrow as they plumb the mundane and cosmic strange. Here we are. Today is November 3rd. Today is the election day. And we're gathered again. A feeling of kind of holding the breath, you know. Everything is um, going one way or the other, I guess, in terms of the direction of Western Civ, if not, you know, the fate of the planet. This yeah. is now too. This is like yeah. Don DeLillo's Mao Too, but it's now too. And I'm here. My name is Sam Truett. I'm here now with.
1: Oh, I'm Sparrow.
0: (laughs) I'm I'm Andrew, Andrew McCarran. Yeah. So, Sparrow,
1: do you want to uh, introduce now too? Well, I have the thought. You know, I recently looked up the phrase, how now, brown cow? And I, you know, it was in my mind. uh, I don't know. I don't know, Andrew, by your generation, if they still, people still said that. No, uh, no, I'm, I'm
2: familiar with that old saw. You've never heard that phrase, huh? I think I may have, but it wasn't in um, it wasn't in um, circulation.
1: Yeah, that's my sense. I mean, I'm thinking, gee, I kind of have not heard this since 1969, and um, it is a phrase to teach one to use rounded vowel sounds. This was the uh, this was the, the the mellifluous phrase in Wikipedia to explain. How Now, Brown Cow, which was, a, I guess, an exercise, um, a vocal exercise. And uh, How Now, Brown Cow seems like a good introduction to now.
0: Interestingly, it sort of picks up on the Bob Dylan tune that you guys evoked, uh, or that you evoked, uh, Sparrow. Oh, yeah, what
1: was that? Ballad
0: of a Thin Man. Ballad of a Thin Man. Oh, that's yeah, right, Mr. Jones.
3: And, right, right. Uh, he
0: uses cow to ri- rhyme with now.
1: Yeah, 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 yeah. With a one-eyed midget says to Mr. Jones, "You're a cow. Give me some milk, or else co- go home." Yeah, that's well. I guess there aren't that many rhymes for for how for for now. I mean. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, so I one of my thoughts was to discuss the whole feeling of this election day where everybody I talked to in the last week, you know, you ask them how they're doing and they say, well, you know, the election's coming up and I'm full of anxiety. Or they don't even say anything that articulate. You know, it just people are are waiting, waiting, waiting. You know, will Trump leave the White House? Will he start a civil war? Will he demand that thousands and thousands of white men with beards surround him with AK-17s and fight off the whole army. And then will the army defect? Possibly the army is really pro-Trump, even though some generals have kind of, you know, condemned Trump in a moderately gentle way. You know, it could be uh, the end of American democracy. So, uh, or something. Trump could end up a dictator. I could end up in a concentration camp for saying this, that I'm saying right now. Uh, it's not impossible. Everybody's full of uncertainty, and it's very hard for people to be in the now. And this is election day itself. So the tension is building. It's We're in a situation where we're trying to concentrate on the now, and we've given ourselves the most difficult task, the most uh-huh. insuperable, nearly insuperable task to discuss what is happening at this moment at a time where you can only think about 9 o'clock tonight. I know what I'm thinking about is I want to have a street party, because I there's a number of my friends live on this street. I happen to live on High Street in Phoenicia. You know, I don't smoke marijuana, but I do live on High Street, and um, it might be time to have a high old time. Either way, if there's martial law, we march into the street in the middle of the pine trees and if there's no Marshall, if, if Biden wins, we have a celebration, uh, outdoor rural celebration. I want to, you know, email all my neighbors and say, let's let's get this moving. If they're still awake after nine, you know, people in the country, they don't stay up that late. But I think some people are going to stay up tonight. You know, <laughs> in
2: Sparrow, in, in my neighborhood on the Upper West Side or Broadway and 101st Street, there are storefronts in anticipation, I suppose, of um,
1: unrest and Rioting. Oh right, and Walmart started. Uh, Walmart stopped selling guns, right? I think that was recently. Walmart has, you know, at least in places where people like to riot, they've stopped selling guns. In the same spirit of anxiety about some kind of unrest.
2: And Elisa mentioned, my wife mentioned that in Whole Foods, there there were bare shelves. People were um, hoarding. Oh yeah.
1: Again, it's, hoarding.
2: Again, yeah. It happened last March, and it's ha- it was happening a few days ago. There was still food in Whole Foods, but there were a lot of items missing and things on the floor and long lines, this sort of
1: thing. Where is that? Where's the Whole Foods near you? Uh,
2: the Whole Foods that we go to is on Columbus
1: Avenue around uh, 98th Street, 97th oh, 98th it's pretty Street. Pretty close. Yeah, so people are thinking if there's an extended five day riot, I want food so I don't have to leave the apartment. Exactly. Yeah.
0: (laughs) Yeah, my wife, uh, you know, is well stocked up on toilet paper and cleaning supplies and medical stuff, and she's now also got a three months worth of her thyroid medication. You know, oh, in case there's disruption in the supply line. So hmm. yeah. I mean I and think in course. terms of now, one thing that occurs to me is that you know, we're in the grammatical sense of now as a predicator of the future. Now mm-hmm. the ship ste- listed to the side.
1: Oh yeah. Yeah. Well that's the past, isn't it? Now the uh, that that sometimes now can be used if there's a series of actions, now can be uh, can can place one action as being after another action. Uh, the uh, the ship now. Yeah, now the ship um, uh, sailed into a uh, boulder. Now the ship listed to one side. I think that uh, the so now is gotten. to indicate progression. Huh. I believe. So I guess you're
0: right. I suppose this uh, future, it would be, um, you know, what's going to happen now? What's going to happen now? What's going to happen now? Like this, well, I mean, of course, you now. could write
1: a, like a science fiction story set in the future where people are saying uh, now uh, beds were no longer uh, used, you know, because uh, the now of the future, the future has a now to...
0: I'm getting a distinct sense that this podcast is listing
1: (laughs) doomed to list.
0: Yeah. I mean, I, I, um, I took some notes, you know, and then I am separated from my notes Oh. and I'm a little bit separated from my body. Mm. Uh, I'm separated from my breath. I, I do feel distended and I, and I do feel on edge. Um, definitely
1: about the selection you mean
0: yeah like everything's been done and we're kind of waiting for the for the um for the fall you know what's going to be fall what will happen next you know what yeah. will happen now um and it i do feel like my self is is a little bit captive to that moment that mm. is ahead that, as you say, eight, nine o'clock, we'll all be like puzzling over the TV and listening to, uh, to returns. As I've said, I'm confident that this early voting is indicative of a massive turnout of people who have, chosen to save the Republic and, and save themselves, um, you know, from this medical emergency. Um, but you know, I don't know.
1: And young people are voting. You know, I saw that yesterday that, you know, the, the levels of young people voting is like the levels of 2008. Young people are something like 63% for Biden, maybe more.
0: Uh-huh.
1: It's a good sign. There's lots of good signs.
0: Yeah, it's but, hard to imagine it could be otherwise. But
1: but on the other hand, you know, who knows if people are lying to the pollsters if the, somehow the Trumpers come out in some sort of secret number. Plus they might steal the election. I mean, that's the, uh, like Trump is 16 points in Pennsylvania, 16 points ahead in Pennsylvania tonight. Then he declares victory. Meanwhile, they're going to, the rest of the ballots have to be counted over the next few days. He's going to eventually lose Pennsylvania, but he's going to say, as he's already said, the Democrats are stealing the election from me. So then the whole thing goes to the Supreme Court and uh, the Supreme Court is very cozy with Trump. You know, there's all sorts of horrible, terrifying scenarios. I mean, it's very rational to be full of anxiety.
0: Yeah. I'm kind of sensing that Andrew is pregnant with thought and that he's yes, got something to that way, say to get it? us off the rocks. Not not necessarily. Um, I don't have much.
2: Um, I don't have many arrows in my quiver at the moment. I'm just wondering, I suppose, have there been previous nows that are like this one
1: hmm. for you? Oh, for me, for us in particular. Yeah,
2: yes. We were Hmm. talking about how um, uncharted this now is.
1: Yeah. I mean, what comes to my mind is uh, I flunked out of Cornell in 1973. And and then my father said to me pretty soon afterwards, he said, we're not going to support you. I just want you to know we're not going to support you, which I really did not expect them to support me. But, uh, you know, here I was. You know, I'd been a brilliant student, always had high. That's how I got into Cornell. And suddenly, I'm out of college. I'm 19 years old. My whole life is in front of me. Um, all I have is a girlfriend, really. No home. You know, I'm I'm living with my friends in this uh, house, collective house in Ithaca, working as a construction worker. But I have no idea what the whole, my entire future will be. And I remember going to the dentist, and the dentist said, you know, you're grinding your teeth. And I'm like, why would I be grinding my teeth? I have no stress, you know. And then uh, whenever 20 years later, I realized I had a lot of stress. Sure.
2: That's uh-huh. when you went to Florida. You went to Florida after
1: <clears throat> Yeah. I mean, for like three months, we lived in Ithaca. Me and Joan, my girlfriend, lived in this house with nine people. And just last night, I, in my dream, I was at a reunion of, of that house, of that household, the Green Lantern Co-op, we called ourselves. So um, anyway, we lived there, and then Joan wanted to move to uh, Arizona, where she'd lived as a 10-year-old. So we took our cat, Carrie, and hitchhiked south with the cat in a little carrying case that she created.
2: It's interesting how those nows, those shocking nows, that's what I'll call them. Mm. the nows that are full of ulteriority or otherness that are uncharted or upsetting really do return to us in dreams <laughs> I think I mentioned maybe in a previous podcast that I'm in a pretty um, rich dreaming sequence um, it's, it's tapered off a little bit but I'm uh, mm. dreaming vividly and intensely and one thing that unified the dreams is that very specific Now, very specific moments from the past Mm. were returning to me in vivid detail moments that um maybe i didn't process the moment maybe it shook me shook me maybe i ran from the moment but Mm. the um, the the temporal case of the now resurfaced in 30 years later 10 years later 15 years later in a way that's that has felt pretty mystical
1: Mm. Do you write them down?
2: I have been, I have been writing them down.
1: Mm, that I've,
2: helps. I've been writing them down by, um, by hand. I'd like to show you the manuscript. Too bad our podcast listeners can't
1: see mm. it.
2: But I, I, in, in a moment, I will go fetch it and show it to you.
0: Huh. I think there are opportunities for showing visual information um, well, that we can true. create. But I'm, I'm interested in this phrase, the case of the now. Is that what you called it? Kind the of the of
2: now, yeah, the um, temporal container of the now. I just I don't have a thesis. I don't have a thesis point here. Only being that I'm struck in my dreamscape that previous nows have returned to me hmm. in, in a way that's extraordinarily vivid, sensorial, hmm. where the, the previous now reconstructs in my consciousness in a way that makes it feel like I'm living it again.
1: Huh. You're like living the same exact experience over again.
2: Yeah, these nodes. But the the moments are not um, flattened into some sort of narrative sequence. Uh It's more these pinpricks Mm -hmm. in time and space that are returning almost like a wormhole
0: (laughs) through the interior cosmos in either direction. Mm. There's the supposition or the feeling of a vertical depth
1: (laughs) falling into a hole I guess
0: yeah I guess what I'm kind of wanting to ask is what is the nature of temporality in the dream state not Mm. in the recollection of the dream but the actual experience of the dream I guess Mm. you know as one might enter in a state of lucidity Mm. but nevertheless in the dream what is the what is what is the temporality of dreams i mean jung may have touched on this yeah i don't have the jungian
2: explanation um it's not a sequence it's in, in my mm. dreams it's, it's 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 like a an experience of the now that's mm. uncharted that hasn't been narrated it hasn't been narrated into meaning mm. but i remember it immediately as some previous Some previous now that I experienced um, that I may Mm. not have even been very aware of as it was happening. But it's returning Mm. to me or I am returning to it Mm. in a way that um, has been powerful and unprecedented in my psychic life.
0: Mm. Yeah, I mean, it it sort of causes me to recall that, you know, the Greek etymology of the word story is Mm. from the Greek, to ask, to inquire. Mm. And it seems to me that, you know, the, I, I understand that dream structures, that what you're speaking of, these moments in dreams, are nonlinear, are not a mm. story. But at the same time, they may be grounded in a deeper sense of story. That is that there's some question that is being asked I see. Mm-hmm. from the arising of these moments in the dream state, from some, I don't know, deeper or higher or listing part of yourself (laughs) that you're being called to respond. Like, I had a dream that involved my paternal grandfather,
2: who died when I was 14. And the last time I saw him in Florida, was maybe... 6 a.m., hmm. and he was standing in the hallway of his um, home in central Florida, Ocala, Florida, and he was staring at me, and he didn't want to say goodbye because it would make him emotional. And we didn't communicate, but I remember looking at him. Uh, what I didn't know is that he was dying and knew it. Hmm. I didn't know that. At this, that
1: time. this really happened, right?
2: This really happened. Yeah. And then my my resurgence my of dreams a few weeks ago, Early October, it began. It started when in the dream, I was back at that instant looking at him and he was looking at me. Wow. And it felt so real.
1: And now now you had the awareness that he was going to die in the dream?
2: No, I, I, that wasn't part of the dream. But Uh he was definitely communicating something. Hmm. And, you know, it took me a while to figure it out. I think he was communicating that for me personally. uh, That's when I stopped feeling things in some ways. Emotionally, or I I guess, as all people must, I developed skills of compartmentalization or talking through my emotions, but not necessarily feeling them. Hmm. And this
0: happened, you were 14 years old, plus or minus?
2: Yeah, for I was 13,
0: 43 now, so that was um 30 years ago.
2: I'm pretty sure he was telling me in the dream I was returning to that previous now that moment in the past mm. so that he could communicate, you know, feel and start here and move forward and feel everything you haven't felt.
1: Uh-huh. Wow. This is the moment where you shut down, he's telling you. Kind
2: yeah, of. this is the moment you begin shutting down. This is also the moment you have to return to to begin opening up and integrating. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: yeah, that's super, uh, that's lovely. The one thing I would also elic- uh, draw out from that is the nature of the gaze mm. uh, can only exist in... You know that which we ascribe to. You know the case of now. You know, mm. like this, like the gaze. When we're really being in our gaze, it's it can only be
1: here. It reminds me of the, uh, you know, the book I and Thou by Martin Buber. You know, where he's he's talking about whatever the the necessity to have a good kind of a dialogue with with the world or with another person rather than have an I-it relationship with the world where you use things. There's two kinds of ways you can be in the world. You can use things, have an I-it relationship, or an I-thou relationship, where you are kind of in a conversation with a person or the world or with God, actually. And and then in the first page of I and Thou, there's a asterisk, a footnote. Anyway, this is my memory. And he says... I started, (laughs) I wrote this book because one day I was at a friend's house and I exchanged a look with his cat. The cat and I locked eyes. And that's why I wrote I and Thou.
2: Sparrow, um, you're going to be tickled pink to hear this. But yesterday in one of my classes, I was teaching Martin Buber and
1: and I mentioned you. Really, as a perfect Buberian uh, exemplar.
2: Because there's this moment after he references the interspecies encounter with the cat, where he, huh. writes about, he writes about his relationship to a tree. Oh! And that subsection begins in translation, I contemplate a tree. Huh, huh,
3: huh.
2: And he contemplates the tree scientifically as an it, reducing it to mm-hmm. some um, taxonomical category of vegetation
1: uh-huh
2: and gradually the mystery mystery of the tree opens up and uh-huh. he joins the tree in the shared experience of um the shared experience of the i and thou in a pretty profound way and i told my students that i had a friend who had a close relationship with the tree and it was you
3: uh-huh. hmm.
2: because you frequently talk about encountering that tree in the now mm-hmm. and
0: being guided on some level Yeah.
2: yeah. Also,
0: also, sparrow is often asking a question of the tree. Of the trees, there are a couple trees that you have. It's true. There are a couple trees. Yeah. The one thing I also want to say, though, is that it's. I, I believe that it might not be so binary. That is, the I, it, the I, thou. Uh I, you know, Hmm. but it it could also have something closer to like an I-it-thou or (laughs) I-thou-it. For example, in the, you know, that is that it's not always that sort of like pow, you know, like I-thou, you know, and sometimes (laughs) there's a little bit of an interval of a little bit of it, you know, there's some distraction. And I would point out that the actual... Sensory dynamic that is sustained between the three of us right now mm. is in some small measure a kind of I, it, thou equilibrium. Because, huh. for example, if one of you is talking, I'm focusing on that person, and there's a kind of itness to say, Sparrow, you know, as I'm <laughs> listening to Andrew, right? Uh
1: So it's at very least an I, thou and thou, you know, he doesn't talk about the triad and, you know, and it's funny to be in a triad. Tricky.
2: It is interesting, Sparrow, that um, Martin Buber doesn't, he he doesn't write about it. Maybe, maybe he like, maybe he steers clear of the Trinitarian language.
1: I oh, he's yeah, right. <laughs> a pretty big Jew.
0: Three voices. Is that right? <laughs> and yet, around any relationship, there's always this sort of third thing, which is all the pasts and all the futures of that relationship.
1: Hmm.
2: Hmm. Hmm. Well, and also,
1: well, Andrew and I both have one child. Yes, right?
2: yes, that's right. So and
1: we have a triad. Each of us has a triad family.
2: Very much so.
1: That might have been the other triad I was trying to remember.
2: (laughs) The one you forgot?
1: Yeah. (laughs) I was listening to these series of lectures, like 48 lectures about ancient Egypt recently. And this, uh, right towards the end, the the professor, whose name I don't remember, but he's great. It's the Great Courses. Great Courses, Ancient Egypt. You look that up, you'll find it, hopefully. And he said, you know, all Egyptian gods were in threes, like Catholicism just ripped off the, uh, the the Egyptians, according to him. And there were other Egyptian motifs, I think maybe the resurrected god, you know, that are in Christianity.
2: There were other threes. Um, yeah, you mean other um, Egyptian spiritual, religious elements
1: that were... Egyptian gods were always in threes. That's what he said.
0: I have uh, Don Bird. He said that human beings have never learned to count past three.
1: Really? Past three?
0: (laughs) Uh, Yeah. Temporal like scheme. You know, we speak of the past, the future, and the present is also Uh, a triad.
1: I wrote a poem, a really long poem that was all uh threes it was all like a series it was a list of threesomes uh Mo, larry and curly uh, uh and the
2: santa marie
1: yeah yeah like uh you know love uh faith and charity <laughs> You know, all, all of them uh shiva vishnu and uh brahma you know they're like it's like, uh, I don't know, it's a list of maybe 40 of them, something like that. What is the one? Crosby, Stills, and Nash. That's the one I'm trying to remember. I guess <laughs> Young is the outlier. Well, Young, you know, it's later. That's the second album. That's not, you know, intrinsic to the threeness of, of them. And yeah, it's very interesting. The uh, three. Oh, Huey, Dewey, and Louie. You know them? The uh, nephews of Donald Duck? Sure. Maybe by generation, people didn't know. Well, I'm, I'm aware yeah. of Donald Duck. Sure. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah. How can,
0: uh, how can we apply the nature of a sort of triangular structure to the temporality of the of now? The dream state. I think um, it's the you know, the three
2: spheres of past, present, and, and future, and. The fact that um, in many dream traditions, those three spheres intersect in the the dream state um, through prophetic dreams or visitation Uh dreams,
1: regressed Uh dreams. Yeah. This dream I had last night where I was, it was actually a reunion of the Green Lantern co-op. So it was kind of, it seemed to be sort of simultaneously in the past and the future, it seemed like a future reunion and of these people i knew from the past and we had a real reunion last year so it's a it's a real thing but this was not that reunion this was a new reunion and uh, and of course it was taking place in the now so it was uh, it did arguably combine past present and future like you're saying did you uh, wake
2: up during the dream
1: i mean a lot of times what i do you know i don't have a job so I wake up and I'm sort of in the dream like the dream itself wakes me up like I'm having a conversation with my friend Bull in the dream and then I there's a point where I can't think of what to say and that sort of wakes me up and then I start turning the dream into a real conversation that I'm having with Bull there was some point I was trying to make to Bull which I can no longer remember so it's it's like it's You know, so that all of my dreams are very temporal. They're not in the now. They're always either repetitive or, uh, you know, there's a lot of like, there's a lot of this doing the same thing over and over again, like, you know, a way that's kind of annoying and maybe ritualistic and kind of obsessive. Mm. My dreams tend to be kind of obsessive. I,
0: I had a dream last night that brings up another kind of triangle, and that is... And it was a dream that I, a quality of dream that I haven't had before, not quality, but in terms of scenario, in which I was with my two parents Mm. together, the three of us. Wow. wow. Yeah. And my mom was kind of quiet. She was just sitting there. But my dad said, oh, yeah, there's one word that I really want to investigate, (laughs) and that is veal veal
1: veal veal
0: yeah and my understanding in the dream is he meant like um like village veal like the french word (laughs) v-i-l-l-e veal veal (laughs) and i was trying to figure out oh no does it have two e's or is it v-i-l-e i couldn't figure out you know
1: whether it's just V I L L V I L L, I think what
0: he meant was veal veal, like town town, like a rep, like a repeating, mm. um, like a spondee.
1: It's one word made up of the word veal repeated.
0: Yeah. Hmm. Unless I misheard, you know, and there's something there that I will evolve. I'm not sure, but he was very clear, and it was he delivered the line in um, in his characteristically sort of urbane, sort of charming way, uh-huh. you know, like it was a moment of mirth.
1: It reminds me of my trees that sometimes just say one word to me, that like the other day I was thinking of, I was teaching a, a writing class at the Phoenicia Library over Zoom recently for three weeks, three Saturdays, and I went to the trees and I asked them for help. And I heard very clearly the word inhabit in my mind. And and which also has to do with the now, could also be relevant to the now. And then from that, I kind of constructed this idea of inhabiting a place and that all great works of literature are very expert about a particular place. Like Melville knew everything about uh, ships. Uh Mark Twain knew everything about the Mississippi River. Uh J. D. Salinger knew everything about uh hotels in on East 37th Street in, in the 1940s, you know?
0: Right. And, and Charles Olson knew everything about Gloucester.
1: Yeah, yeah. And Emily Dickinson knew everything about her garden. Uh and and, her, and you knew, know which is also her mind. Yeah. Uh, but I mean, also physically, like every particular right. flower in the garden. And and how that's what literature is. If you can really inhabit a place, you know, or rather you can't write great literature until you really inhabit a place. Oh, and maybe, nice. you, you know, you can't know time until you can really inhabit the now.
0: <laughs> I think you can also say that you inherit a certain vocabulary.
1: Mm, inhabit, you mean?
0: inhabit a certain vocabulary, yeah, a certain set of words, a kind of arrangement, a conceptual arrangement that can be topological, you know, like a garden or like a city,
1: you know. Well, I'm listening to these lectures now about uh, the American dialect. It's called something like English in America, Mm. and it's all about, about how words are local, you know, about how Each of us speak some kind of dialect, and the dialect has its words, and the words are related to a place. Right.
0: Yeah, I guess what I was saying was more had to do with a a domain of concepts or Mm -hmm. of ideas, um, Mm -hmm. you know, that relate to, you know, I think to nature. You know, those are the things that endure. Sam, when did your parents divorce?
1: How old were you? Uh,
0: I was nine years old.
1: Wow. When I, did the dream take yeah, place? I was like nine years
0: old when they separated.
2: Well, I think the veal, the veal makes sense in some ways in that your dad was in the dream state trying to unify the, the two villages.
1: The two places where the two of them live.
2: Yeah, the two the two locations, the loci of their lives that you shuttled between, whether it was in D.C. or in Guadalajara, or you know, San Miguel, wherever your father moved to. It sounds almost like a summit that your father organized to try to bring the two villages together on some level.
0: Oh, yeah, that's very profound, Andrew. Thank you. That's mm. what yeah, I mean, it was the fragment of a dream and of an abiding that I felt with them in the dream thing, but that's not articulate. But what I took away on waking was that fragment. And I think that's super interesting because I think veal also has to do with life too.
1: Oh, veal. Not
0: only in terms of veal like village, but I believe there's like the association of village comes from vitality.
1: Well, the word veal, you know, in French, life means veal, V I E, -E 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 which is literally inside the word veal. <laughs> it's
0: interesting, yeah, so I'm feeling like very strongly the wisdom of what you're saying, namely that my father was saying both of those lives, their lives, their ways of life are together with me,
1: mm-hmm.
0: yeah,
2: and I know I was just reading some Jung last night
3: huh.
2: um his essay on the nature of dreams, and he wrote somewhere it's not close enough to grab, but the job of the unconscious in any now in, at any present moment especially when we we, we dream is to integrate
3: mm. is
2: to try to integrate those pieces that have been snapped off or fragmented or split mm. in mm. the long process of individuation into a unified personality mm. Mm. integrated personality of past present and future of conscious and unconscious of
0: Yeah, I totally, I totally hear that. But I would also, but I feel also the call at the back of me, which is that isn't that just more rearranging the deck chairs, (laughs) you know, and that, you know, coming from, you know, rearranging the deck chairs on the Titanic, namely that, you know, we're sort of integrating this structure of a personality and then but there's still the, uh, you know, we're all on the edge of our seats. But we're all also on the edge of our lives. You know, the death, you know, death comes without warning. This body will be a corpse.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: You know? So I would also posit like that is a very profound call at the back of all this, hmm. even now. Even now, especially now.
1: Right mm-hmm. now. <laughs> now. Also, I wanted to say that veal, I mean, because I'm like a a perpetual student of French, and the way I hear the word veal, to me, it has a sweetness, like a a feeling of sort of cherishing this town. It's not just a town the way we have the word town, but a veal is a place that you respect and love. I I don't know that I hear that in in the word.
0: Is there a connection to villain, like, yeah, Vion, I think a villain. You know, is, François Vion, but, you know, villain, like a,
1: a townsman.
0: No, isn't a villain also a thief, a uh, highwayman.
1: Yeah. But I think the original meaning, like in Shakespeare uses the term, it means, uh, like a, a, a guy who lives in the country. I guess it could mean a woman too, but I think it was, a, I think of it as always being male. I think that, you know,
0: there is some call, and in the case of both my parents, of leading villainous lives.
1: Yeah, <laughs> yeah it says Middle English, villain, feudal serf, person of coarse feelings, from Old French, from Vulgar Latin. It's ultimately from Latin, villa, the word we still have, country house. So a villain is a serf who's attached To the villa, you know, he's like kind of someone who lives around the edge of the villa. And village also comes from villa. So, and I think veal is essentially villa.
0: So I think they're also cognitively related to sort of ways of life. Villages are often designed according to a certain geology, and you know Mm. what a local uh, area will. Uh, sustain, you know, because you have desert villages, forest villages, and they all evolve their own ecology, human ecology. I'm... Big believer in the village model, <laughs>
1: you know, it's a way of life. But I think the word villain, you know, contains the, uh, I think the word clown also, you see it in Shakespeare, comes from the word for farmer, is related or means farmer. And uh, a lot of this is the uh, prejudice of urban people against rural people, that uh, villains are these coarse, uh, you know, these uh, still exists. you know, the people in the country, people who vote for Trump are a bunch of, uh, you know, rude, brutal,
0: villainous.
1: Yeah. People.
0: Well, Trump is the the <laughs> now in clown, <laughs> but I mean, I still feel very attached to what Noam Chomsky said, which is that Trump is the most dangerous animal to have ever walked this earth. Hmm. I think wow. he didn't say animal. I think I may have said, you know, most dangerous <laughs> human being who has ever walked this earth.
1: Wow. Yeah, that's pretty profound. I mean, that's pretty extreme. I'm not sure,
0: dude. I'm not sure. I mean, we wouldn't be talking in the way we are if he weren't so the kind of fascist wave that he's sent around this globe a couple times yeah. you know, and the kind of like in Indonesia now, you know, there was this some um, bill passed, this big omnibus bill that not only erodes workers' rights you know, mm. in a broad way, but also rescinds many of their loosely uh, regulated, Ecological laws that protect the rainforest. Yeah, and we don't have a government that will pay attention to that present moment. And for the next couple of months, also, people forget that Trump's going to be president for a couple of months. I know it is. Gonna be rough. That's going to be the real dangerous window. I agree, and all this—that whole window—and that window is the most dangerous thing because our planet is going under, and we need right now for the world to come together to, uh, you know, mitigate some of the um, harms that are already built into the model. And my feeling is that what. Trump tapped into is Mm. the superpower that has brought human beings to this point in their evolution, Mm. which has to do with trusting our own eyes and trusting our own ears. For whatever reason, the way in which people get information now and occupy their time in these Mm. screened off worlds, we can no longer trust our eyes and ears.
1: Oh, I see. Like That's
0: gone. And so we're trying to adjust to a new way, a new sensorium, which hmm. I feel Andrew's investigation of the dream is going to advance.
1: Oh. Well, but the I...
0: bottom line is that that's what that's the power that Trump seized upon and that we're living through the repercussions of. And that's a, a huge adjustment that we need to make, I believe. I
2: agree um, in every sphere. Through everything that becomes present to us, gaze toward the train of the internal you. In each we perceive a breath of it. In every you we address the eternal you, in every sphere according to its manner.
1: Wow. What is that?
2: Martin Buber. Ah, ha, ha, That's <laughs> mystical. Great. From yeah. I and Thou, and it has everything to do with the now. And Sam's um, discourse, what you just said, Sam, Really reminded me of this passage. Huh. In that we've been, um, wow, we've lost something vital. We cannot trust what we see. Where we cannot trust what we hear. How mm. do we rediscover this um, eternal you? Mm. In each thing that we perceive. How do mm. we find our way back to it? Mm. Mm. And for me, dreams have been important in this um, bizarre time to reconnect. Oh, I see. Yeah, the, the dreams. But I didn't. It's not something I will, it's something, and this is a point that Jung makes, it's something that happens on its own.
1: Yeah, but I think it happens in part from uh, this kind of monastic life you've been forced to live uh, unintentionally through the um, quarantine.
2: Interesting possibility. That's that's fascinating. I thought, oh, I haven't been drinking, I haven't been um, doing THC. But it might be broader than that. It might have to do with the very circumstances of my existence over the past few
1: months. Yeah, because you're pretty. It's pretty much changed. You know how much you can distract yourself, and that's you know when the inner process can take over. I think.
2: And yeah, I do, I do feel I was living in an I it the universe in a lot of ways.
1: Really? How do you mean? Well,
2: I don't. I think that's contrary to my nature, but I just think being in capitalism um working mm-hmm. a demanding job thinking about things financially and transactionally divorced me from some key element of my my spiritual orientation that that has been and is always there but um my gaze was uh, averted elsewhere
1: mm-hmm. huh. yeah it's nice it's a yeah, blessing is, it's a yeah. blessing of the uh, coronavirus and also the fact that I think that everyone decided to do it. You know, everyone except certain villains who are against uh, the shutdown and against wearing masks. You know, it was kind of like a collective decision of the civilization to just stop all the nonsense that was distracting us from the now.
0: <laughs> I think that that's uh, you know that's a auspicious or you know
1: positive. Uh, kind of look at it. Here's one of my thoughts that I wrote down that I haven't had time to discuss. Uh, one of the discoveries I made about the now, thinking about it recently, is that um, the now is incredibly brief, briefer than a word. You know, I think that people use the word now. I mean, that's one of the things that we maybe should discuss is the definition of the word now, because now could mean today. It could mean this year. You know, it has a very flexible meaning, but the actual literal now is so short that if you say to yourself, I wonder if the soup is done yet, by the time you say the word I, you're not in the now. The now is briefer than all words. That's my discovery from thinking about it
0: wonder if it's the now if mm. it doesn't include the mind. In other words, yeah. isn't the state of now <clears throat> a state of the you know, one event. I think that's what Whitehead called it, you know, that we existed, the universe exists as one event Mm -hmm. and time uh, as we perceive it does not exist. And I just wonder if if now can be temporally defined in such a way that it can exclude anything. And I Mm -hmm. don't think that it can exclude mind.
3: Uh
0: All of our sensorium is organized in that lag that we talked about last time. You know, that, you know, our nervous system, you know, 200 some odd miles an hour. But I would also say that the mind is a sense, you know, we have the sense of touch, we have the sense of smell, et cetera, et cetera. And then we have the sense of now. Or we have the sense of presence.
1: It's a sense maybe. like the five You senses. could
0: say that it's a... Yeah, and I would say that it's the clo- closer to proprioception. Mm. Um, yeah. And that it's an overall sense. It's the complete sense, mm. integration. It's the integration of all the senses. I
1: find that when I try to like focus on the now, I feel like it constantly slips away. Like yes. maybe I have a weakness in my now sense, or maybe we're having different definitions of now, but... I'm trying right this moment to be in the now, and I feel like it, it well, slips away say, almost like water.
0: See, I would say that the now exists as Andrew's grandfather <laughs> in the light of the Green Lantern staring back at us. ha, <laughs> ha that the gaze is uh, is is a sig- is a significant register of the now
1: I am now I
0: love like that Sam
2: that's that's a thoughtful sense of the now the gaze
0: it's as funny. opposed to the glimpse. You know, most <laughs> of our lives are spent in glimpses, which really? is also, like, profound.
1: The glimpse is not the now?
0: Well, the, you know, versus this, the gaze or the stare, you know, to really stare at something, which almost has a negative connotation, yeah. uh, versus glimpses. Most of our lives are made of glimpses, little fragments of vision that we build a uh, I-It relationship to, mostly. We also glimpse things sometimes, you know, that moments of profound perception are carried in the glimpse.
2: There's that great Elizabeth Bishop poem, what is it called, Um, 40,000 illustrations in a complete concordance? Or is it (laughs) 80,000 illustrations? Do you know it? I don't know it. But the the final line I remember is, and looked and looked our infant sight away.
1: Huh, wow. What does that mean?
2: I think it's all about like the poem um is um an epic catalogue of previous uh-huh. events and places visited, and I think it it's very uh-huh. visual I think it's all of these visual fragments that occupied um consecutive nows trying to find some place Hmm. some geometry of experience it's also visual it's
0: also also
2: tied up with the
0: gaze also elegiac
2: yeah in
0: that it seems to maybe be reminiscing on a state of of having innocent eyes
1: Can you say the line again, Andrew?
0: Yeah, I'll read it. Looked and looked, our infant
2: sight away.
1: Wow, sight, such a good word.
2: Oh, I'm sorry. The the name of the poem is "Over Two Thousand Illustrations and a Complete Concordance." Uh huh. Charming title. Yeah. And the final, um, the beautiful final stanza, very moving, I think, is this. Ready? Everything only connected by and, and, and. Open the book. The gilt rubs off the edges of the pages and pollinates the fingertips. Open the heavy book. Why couldn't we have seen this old nativity while we were at it? The dark ajar, the rocks breaking with light, an undisturbed, unbreathing flame, colorless, sparkless, freely fed on straw. And lulled within a family with pets, and looked and looked our infant sight away.
1: Wow. Wow. Like, uh, it's about the nativity? Is that what it's about?
0: There was a little snatch of that with the straw, but that was profound. Wow. Is
2: it profound? It's It's, yeah.
0: it's a profound poem. That's the
2: final stanza of the poem. It's hmm. the stanza that John Ashbery, I believe, read aloud at Frank O'Hara's funeral. Really? Yeah, I remember reading that in David Lehman's book, The
1: Last Avant-Garde. That's really surprising. I didn't think these guys were in with Elizabeth Bishop. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah? They all liked her?
2: Yeah, John Ashbery smoked pot with her once. Smoking wow. pot with Elizabeth Bishop. I, I, I love that story. He mentioned it. He mentioned it in class.
1: It's hard to imagine. Should I read my uh, poem that I I sort of have a poem to read?
0: Yeah, Definitely.
1: Oh, okay. Well, I didn't... I forgot to prepare anything, but I noticed that next to my computer, I have this page that my friend Charlie sent me in the mail. It's a it's a review of an Allen Ginsberg book, uh, Planet News, from Rolling Stone, May 17th, 1969. And uh, there's a, uh, a verse from... Uh, do you know this poem he wrote about the Beatles, about seeing a Beatles concert? Uh, anyway, it's uh, the title of the poem is Portland Coliseum. Apparition, four brown English jacket, Christ hair boys, goofed Ringo battling bright white drums, silent George hair, patient soul horse, short black sculled Paul. With thin guitar, Lennon, the captain, his mouth, a triangular smile, all jump together to end some tearful memory song, ancient, two years. I love that poem.
0: I like it too. I've never heard of it. I like poem. that last line.
1: Yeah, it's not two the last years. line. It's uh, There's a... Uh, Ellipsis after it, I think, you know, the poem is longer than that. But this is Uh. the the little description of the Beatles themselves from the poem. I mean, one of the things that's interesting about this poem is that uh, Ginsburg goes to this concert, you know, I think it's 1965, as I recall. You know, the Beatles are playing like She's a Woman and Ticket to Ride. Those type of songs, you know, from their sort of second wave period. And Ginsburg's this old Jewish poet, he walks into this Coliseum, and he intuits the whole youth revolution that's going to change the world from this concert, you know, of these guys singing these kind of dumb pop songs. He gets it all, and then he kind of makes it happen, you know? He invents the be-in in San Francisco's Golden Gate Park, and he sort of wills it into existence, this youth movement that will transform everything.
0: I do have this one thing. I, uh, You know, in my scrambling through... Um, election sort of things at the New York Times. um, For some reason, I fed through into a very promising moment, which is a performance. It's a derivative from Claudia Rankin's proposed and rehearsed and worked out play called Help that was going to take place at the Shed in New York. But the coronavirus pandemic you know made that impossible so instead a film was made entitled november and it is related to white male privilege and to the experience of claudia rankin and the experience of black people and the experience of white people and how I thought it might be useful for me to uh, play a little bit of this. I mean, this is a super complicated, I think maybe this could almost be a separate podcast. You know, talk about it maybe more thoroughly. But what it involves is the stage of the shed and five women and then numerous black men, a few white men. Hmm. I mean, it's complicated visually. The text is Claudia Rankin's narrating her experience relating to white men. And I remember I read a New York Times Magazine piece from which this is partially based. And um, this is into a really profound. Um, location of the kind of wound that we're living through right now, what we've been living through as Americans, that the mm. real pith of the trouble that we're in now and that we've been experiencing forever is in slavery and is in racism and is in the privileging of very few people at the expense of many. And those are people of color, broadly speaking. Within this performance, the part I was going to play had to do with Swerve. Oh. Has to do with us as three white guys. Mm. Has to do with now, which is a trope of this section that I was that I would like to play, and that it it seems as though it goes to the heart of this day, election day, and you know, hours right. away from seeing what what the good Lord brings. Let's hear it. Listen closely to the sound of November.
3: Life yeah. together, one has to know how to shift the posture. Swerve. What does it mean to swerve? What does it mean to give yourself another chance? Another chance to stay standing. Another chance to stay in this life. Another chance to have a life. To hope that even when you are not there... The swerve continues in someone else who is not you. The someone who is not you moves you. By moving your category out of the way of harm, incidental or otherwise, holds you by holding your best interest as part of their best interest. The someone who is not you ...feels through others... ...has a feeling... ...for others... ...the someone who is not you... ...is incomplete... ...without knowing you... You can be human... ...and white... ...you can be white without going white... ...you can be in place... Without taking all the space. What history has taught us is that you can be white and swerve away from the supremacy of whiteness. While swerving towards the someone who is not you. Being white doesn't erase being human. Being black is not the N-word. Being black is not the need. It's the now and now. It's the emergency and now, the now, the now, it's now. Now's the emergency. Swerve. Being white is not the F-word. Being white hey. is not fatal. It's the force in feel. It's the emergency in feel. We feel in order to swerve. To swerve into the consciousness of another without the risk of losing the self.
0: Many thanks for joining us on this edition of Baffling Combustions and our ongoing investigation of the uncanny and wondrous And please join us next time, and remember to stay tuned and strange.